Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Well, you hear me say every week that I'm continuing to find heart-centered leaders around the globe. And sometimes people cross my path and I just find that I have to pause in gratitude and just feel the serendipity. So I want to introduce you to a very, very interesting gentleman who crossed my path. His name is William Adams. And during the day, he's a, a technical advisor to the chief technical officer at Microsoft. But I love the way he self-reflects in why he wanted to be on the show. He said to me that he has a strange job, and instead of working on full-time technical initiatives, he mostly spends his time working with people and helping them navigate problems. He says it's forced him to grow as a leader in the best way possible. And we're going to have such a great chat today, and we're going to talk about leading with empathy within my questions, and I'm really excited. So, William, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deb. That was quite a nice intro. Well, like I said, there's been a lot of goosebump, serendipitous alignment moments on this podcast. We've just surpassed 150 leaders. People ask me all the time, what are you doing with this podcast? I'm having an absolute blast having meaningful conversations and, and crossing paths with people like you. So it's for me, it's it's a joyous part of my day. I try, I try and interview somebody at least three times a week. And I believe that we all have the ability to listen and learn from each other. And I I, I feel that intersection just as people, let alone the leadership that we learn and, and teach each other and, and we grow and evolve as human beings. Yeah. I mean, if we all listen more, we probably have a better planet, right? Absolutely. So I'm ready to jump in if you're ready. I'm ready. You are one impressive man. I thought, how am I going to keep this to 30 minutes? So I'm, I'm going to do my best. <laughs> now, I know that as a Black leader, you have alluded that you're on a mission, not just to find women and people of color as technical talent, but to grow them. So share with us the backstory of this pursuit and purpose that has been engraved on your heart to do so. The short of it is essentially my own awakening. You know, I'm 57, as I have to keep reminding myself. And when I was about 40-ish, sitting on a beach in Hawaii, contemplating a move to India, where I lived for three years after that point, I just really contemplated what is life about? You know, why am I here? What am I doing? I've, I've been through 20 plus years of tech already at that point. Now I'm hitting those midlife crisis earning years, you know, all that stuff. And I just really thought about what is life about? And I actually came up with what I call my life creed, you know, which is about learning, being intentional, being fearless and being empathetic. 
And that was the genesis of it, because for me, it's like, okay, yeah, you can ship software all you want, and that's useful. And whatever you wrote this year won't be in existence 10, 15 years from now, but the lives you affect will be. And if we can do that intergenerationally, um, particularly for women and minorities, that's going to be better for humanity. So it was just an awakening, you know, uh, around when I was 40-ish. You had a midlife awakening. Midlife awakening. And I just went, okay, midlife, great. I'm going to own my midlife. (laughs) You know, I'm going to drive my midlife, not let it drive me. Well, and I love the midlife wisdom that we gain from experiences, good, bad, indifferent. And, you know, what I like to call the metacognition that intertwines. How do we feel about it? How do we think about different things that we think about? And there's so much alignment when we share and lead with empathy to see the alignment with others. I think we get there when we get to the other side of the uncomfortable part of being transparent and vulnerable and not worrying or having the weight of other people's opinions on our shoulders. Yeah. And for me, that was the, in my life creed, the the fearless part. Fear is uh, oftentimes, well, what will they think of me if I'm soft? What will they think of me if I'm empathetic? What, you know, what does that have to do with engineering, right? It's like, no, engineering is hard, cold, calculated. It's like when you show up with feelings, with emotion, with empathy, that can be scary. And a lot of people I know, in, in tech at least, uh, they don't show that part of their humanity because it, it's scary. <laughs> so yeah, for me, my life credence saying I'm going to be fearless is to say, okay, If people think of me, so what? I'm, you know, that's not going to kill me. (laughs) What's wrong with being, what's wrong with being empathetic? It's interesting because I coach, I'm going to call them high level analytical thinkers, people in biomed or biopharm or any kind of technical job. And to me, I think what you're doing is you've put a beautiful imprint, not a dent, an imprint in the alignment that EQ has to align beautifully and in sync with IQ. And there is room in place. And I think what we're doing is we're breaking down academic and business acumen. And I think we're also kind of getting rid of the myth of generational values that we can create new values within our own generations. Just because your mom and your grandma or your father or your grandfather did it, it doesn't mean there's not that openness for new elements to be brought into play. I think that's beautiful. Second question is is so fun. It has permanent residency on the show and it's why I called the show Imperfect. What imperfections does William bring to his heart-centered leadership? My whole life. (laughs) I I would say it the other way around. There's no perfection I bring to my heart-centered leadership. It's all learning. There is not a perfect moment in my life. I cannot say that I've done anything perfectly. So it's all imperfection, I think. And just recognizing that, and I'm okay with that, because everything is about learning for me. Again, back to my life creed, it's like, well, you can't learn if you're perfect. So everything is imperfect and everything is a learning opportunity, which means you're always progressing and getting better. You'll never reach perfection. So you're just evolving. I shouldn't even have said better. You're just evolving because you keep learning all the time. So that's, that's the imperfection I bring is my whole life. I love that. And, and I also love that perfection just continues the hamster wheel. Like 
It's the intangible reality and it's non-existent. And I, I love that answer. I've, I've never had anyone answer, you know, their, their life's work and being that's beautiful. Okay. I, I need to, again, uh, I, I don't even know how to, how to truncate this, but I'm going to do my best. My third question is you co-founded the leap apprenticeship program for Microsoft, and it's to help blacks, women, and other underrepresented communities get technical jobs. I want to share some of the stats. You've graduated 26 cohorts around the world, and 98% of graduates get jobs in high tech. Tell us where, you know, this idea was born and how you just executed the undertaking of this and just bask in the success with us because it's phenomenal. Okay, let me, uh, let's see, it's 2015, 2015. And I was talking to one of our corporate vice presidents about what his key business challenges were. And in his mind, I'm sure it was kind of a a throw off commentary where it's like, oh, you know, there's this diversity thing. And I just kind of hooked on to that. And it was a confluence of my evolution. I said at 40, I was, you know, on the beach in Hawaii contemplating going to India. And here I am at what, 2015, 51. And again, it's okay. I woke up in Hawaii in 2005, and now it's much later. It's 25, 10 years later. Now it's the action phase because I didn't, I did a lot of stuff in uh, India, but this was different. This was more of a, oh, I'm in a unique position as a, an African American to do something that hasn't been done yet. So uh, that was it. And I had a partner, her name is uh, Chun Lu. And she was in HR and Girish, the guy who sent me down this path said, I'll go talk to her, you know, and we just kind of connected and she and I really gelled well. I'm kind of the, the crazy big thinker. And it's like, oh, we can we can do this thing. And it was just a realization that, well, where are these people? Where are these women and minorities? Why aren't they? You know, we have a common excuse in tech, which is, oh, the pipeline. There's no women. <laughs> you know, it's like. You're just not looking in the right place for the women. <laughs> That's the problem. Uh, it's not that there's no women. There's plenty of women. Half the planet is women. <laughs> so uh, so we just said, okay, where, where are they? And we discovered this thing called coding academies. You know, I'd never heard of them before that point. And that's where a lot of people were getting trained up in tech at that time, 2015. And they're like web developers and backend engineers. They're all sorts of people and they come from all sorts of different walks of life. So that combined with our company mission of empower every person, in every organization on the planet to achieve more. I thought, well, that's an opening to drive a truck through. So I constructed in my mind this thesis that said, if you want to empower everyone on the planet, you must have empathy for everyone on the planet. If you want to have empathy, you need representation. You need perspective. You don't get perspective by hiring a bunch of white guys from MIT, right? You need people from all over the place, (laughs) all sorts of different walks of life. Now, that doesn't mean I'm just going to go out to a farm and hire a farmer and say, start coding, buddy. You know, it's like, no, but there's plenty of people who came from rural communities who are trying to get into tech. We just have to open our eyes and our arms and pull them in. And I'll say one more thing about the LEAD program is, is it was about, um, it was as much about training our hiring managers on how to see people differently as much as it was hiring the people. 
because the real transformation is inside our company, not the people. The people were already wanting to get into tech, but we didn't know how to look at them differently and stop thinking you must have a four-year CS degree to work here, right? Uh, and we broke that mold. And now it's just this super successful thing that's um, federally accredited and all this other sort of stuff. So there you go. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> the last thing I was going to add to that is you also opened your hearts to see them as people and the potential. And, you know, just just in you answering that question, I've just written down three more people that I, I need to connect you with. It's It's amazing when we have such a beautiful, meaningful conversation about the work that you're doing. And there's so many other people uh, I'm already thinking that I can help pull in to, to further augment and continue to see this evolve. So this is what it's all about. It's why we have the podcast. Beautiful. Now, my last question, it's, it's more of a personal question. Right. You have made some really significant decisions in terms of using your own money to help other populations grow. I believe this is your story to tell. And I would also love you to touch upon your own decision about the school system you put your own children in. So if you would be so kind to share those kind of two decisions and why, I I just think it, it further augments to the greater good that you're doing on a professional level. And yet your personal life is, is aligned in the same regard. So please share with us. The first one, I suppose, is um, back in earlier this summer, so in June, I went to the Caribbean as part of a Microsoft effort to um, open up shop out in the Caribbean and do some engineering and, and whatnot. And uh, we had this week-long symposium with the government and all their departments and various other people, and we met just tons of people. At the end of all this grandeur or in this you know, government house, all this sort of stuff. And I just thought, you know, and I, I, you know, gave closing remarks. And I was just saying, we can do this, you know, and it was about uplifting them, using technology, this, that, and the other thing. And I said, we can do this. All that is required is our personal accountability, right? Our commitment to each other. I'm committed. You know, all you have to do is be committed to yourselves because technically, we're here. Microsoft is here. We can help you, but you have to be committed to doing this. And I can't commit you. You have to commit yourself. And so I said, as a, as a final remark, I said for myself, for me personally, not as Microsoft, I said, I'm committed to the success of you guys. And I'm going to spend $200,000 to show my commitment. And it wasn't just a pure, like, I'm going to give somebody $200,000. It's I'm going to open an office. I'm going to help people who want to start businesses. I'm going to help educate, do whatever. But I'm going to spend $200,000, you know, and I'm not some super multimillionaire, but I've got that much (laughs) and I think it's worth spending. So I did, and I do have an office there and I'm spending that money because I said, I am personally committed and this is what it looks like to be committed, right? And I have no history in the islands. I didn't, I didn't grow up there, but I met a set of people and I said, I want to be a, become a part of your community. And I'm not trying to buy my way into the community, but I'm definitely showing my commitment by spending my treasure. That's part of commitment. So that was the Caribbean and that's ongoing. And then the other one was uh, more recently at the beginning of the school year here back in Washington, 
I was looking at our, our kids going to public school and they go to public school, not private. I have an older daughter who I sent through private school. And this time we're doing the whole public school thing because I went through public schools. And at the beginning of the year, you know, I knew from previous experience that teachers spend on the order of $500 each on their classroom for various supplies. This is in the public school. Now, teachers are not the most highly paid people in our community. So $500 is significant for them. And I thought, well, that's okay. Let's do something about this. And when my, when my son was in kindergarten, I had given each of the four kindergarten teachers $500. So it was maybe $2,000 total. This year, I, I talked to the principal. And I said, what can we do? You know, what can we donate <laughs> to help improve things? And, and the poor principal, you know, she's like, well, you know, I'm not, I don't want to ask for money. It's kind of embarrassing. And we're a public institution and blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, well, so I went to the front office and I asked the administrator there, it's like, how many teachers are there? She said, oh, there's 20 teachers plus 10 specialists, you know, 30. So I said, all right. And I just came back the next day and I gave her a check for $15,000. And Microsoft matches. So that's a total of $30,000, you know, going to the school. And on the one hand, you would think, wow, what a tremendous thing. Look how great, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if you've put kids through private school, you know that you spend twenty-four dollars to $30,000 per child. And it doesn't have nearly the impact <laughs> that $30,000 has in the public school system. So I thought, okay, I'm, it's actually a discount, <laughs> if you think of it one way. I have two kids going to public school. So that's roughly $48,000, $50,000 I'm not spending on private school. I don't need to hoard that. I can give it to my community. They will benefit tremendously from having that money. They got, you know, the microphones for the classroom and teacher education that they can do because they wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. So I just think it's it's one of those outsized impact, positive impacts, right? Where you just have to be a community member and say, well, what do they need? It's important that my kids are in public school because I want them to experience normalcy, for one, and not live in an ivory tower as they're growing up. And that means that I can, uh, even if they weren't going to school, it just opens my eyes that we should be donating more to our schools because that's our future. And if we don't spend lavishly on them, we won't have a lavish future because <laughs> the bulk of people come from public schools, not private schools. So uh, those are my two stories. I won't call myself a philanthropist, but I'm awake to the fact that you do not take your money with you when you die. So there's a lot of good you can do on this earth while you're still here. So I'm trying to do it. Absolutely. And I think what I want to really highlight from the two stories is, is the foundation of heart-centered leadership. It's behaving in a way where you're not looking for reciprocity. You're not looking for it to be transactional. You wanted to give for the greater good, not because you had to, but because you chose to. And I just think that's wonderful and completely amazing. And it's part of your life creed, which you so beautifully shared with us. I'm going to switch to my fab four. These are just four fun questions. We want to know what's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. So first question, tell us something about William that we don't know. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, my son yesterday said, I'm bored. I want to do something interesting. Let's go clean the garage. <laughs> So he made up a plan. My son is eight. 
And he made up this plan, including like, first we move the car out and then we move everything to the center of the garage. Then we move the big equipment around. So the thing that you don't know is that I'm a bit of a pack rat, not to the, not to the point where I'm going to show up on a YouTube video as they clean my house out. My, as we were going through stuff, he's like, well, what's this thing? It's like, oh, this was from this thing like 15 years ago when, when uh, we were trying to build some toys and blah, blah, blah. I had a box that had like 200 toothbrushes in it. And he's like, what is this for? Oh, we're going to make these little robots with these little motors and a battery on top. And they scurry around. He's like, why do you do all these things? Like, because it's just fun to experiment with different stuff. So a bit of a pack rat. And I've, I've never stopped tinkering. You know, I'm always playing with like, oh, I want to try this new thing. Maybe it's little robots. Maybe it's things with straws. We still have in our in our pantry a bag of straws that I probably bought 20 years ago because I was going to construct things with straws, you know, but there's like 2000 straws in the bag. (laughs) So you're never going to get through them all. And we, of course, we didn't do the major construction with straws that I anticipated. So I'm a, I'm a tinkerer, I think is a better way, not a pack rat. I never stop tinkering. I mean, I code, I write code every morning. I'm always thinking as I'm sketching things on paper, you know, I'm a tinkerer that heart. Well, you know what I love about that story is we're learning something we don't know about you, but you've certainly taught your son about planning and organizing and sequencing. And it's really neat to see. I always challenge parents to think of a young child in terms of months instead of years. So he's eight, but he's only been on the earth for 96 months and and look what you've instilled. So that's really cool. I love that. Yeah. It's fun doing stuff with him. He's quite the clever boy. Okay. Second question, share with us a book that has been really impactful in your life and tell us why. And if you remember the author, that's just a bonus element as well. Yeah, it would be um, the biography of Nikola Tesla. I think it was Margaret Chen. There's many books in my life, and including all religious texts like Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas and um, all the Christian literature. But this one stands out. Uh, because I'm an engineering mind. And there's a lot I got out of Tesla from just hearing his story of how he visualized things, how he invented things, how how he ended up in poverty, essentially. <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of things there. You Until I read that story, I didn't know Nikola Tesla and his impact on the world. You know, it's like AC electricity and certain kinds of wireless radio. And it was just all that stuff, how he was just out there. And that's kind of inspiring for a young inventor like myself, where you just see, well, how do you do that? And avoid the downsides, <laughs> you know. Uh, he was probably borderline whatever mentally, but just such a brilliant mind. So that was probably one of the most uh, influential books in my life. On top of that, I would say that it would be the various religious texts. And there's one in particular, it's called the Tanakh, which is from the Jewish faith. What's the best characterization? It's like the real Old Testament. (laughs) You know, it's the underpinnings of the Old Testament. And you just read that. It's like very involved, very deep. And this is not this is not lovely stuff where it's like, oh, God and the angels and everything. It's like, no, we went on down to this village and we castrated all the men and we're looking at our wives the wrong way. You know, it's deep. (laughs) And you go, okay. You asked for one, but I'm giving you three. The last one is the Bhagavad Gita. And the influence of that is that there was an explanation of 
there's a battle scene and the God is talking to the man and the man saying, Oh, it's not okay to kill these people. That shall not get killed. He's like, it's okay. You know, it, it's okay to kill them because, you know, first of all, in that faith, you're, you're evolving. So you're going to come back, but as part of life, you know, battles occur and I'm on your side in this one and it's fine. And that was just a, for a Christian mind, that was a flip. Because in the Christian mind, thou shalt not kill is the, is the primary commandment. So seeing a God-like figure talking to a man saying, here's when it's okay, was kind of comforting because it's hard to do that as a Christian to justify things like war, where it's like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to turn the other cheek, thou shalt not kill this, and here we are killing people. For why? There's no, it's not backed by the faith because the faith doesn't give you anything to fall back on. So that was probably a, a very interesting one as well. Okay, third question. If I could grant you one wish for the world, what would it be? Oh, that we all just could uh, open our hearts. I wouldn't say speak with one voice, but to just open our hearts and have more empathy and understanding of each other. And perhaps furthermore, find a, a common goal and good that we could strive for as a humanity. Beautiful. Well, I'm, before we close out with my last question, I want to say I was excited and embraced the opportunity to have you on the show. I think you are certainly a great example of a global heart-centered leader with not only what you're doing with your role at Microsoft, but what you're doing in your own life as a heart-centered leader. And I often talk about on the show that you don't need initials after your name or a fancy role to show up as a leader in your life and just embrace that wholeness of what we can do. And, and you just beautifully said that with, with what you want is your wish. So mm. I want to thank you for spending time with me today and for sharing your heart. And I'm going to get you to close out the show for us by answering this sentence for me, finishing this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is is the true state of human existence. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time and we'll see you again.